And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, June 15th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, for the Veterans Health Administration, virtual reality is more than just fun and games. Plus, is that federal data strategy more than just a piece of paper? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the State Department is hiring so it can handle a surge in passport applications. With summer travel on the rise, the department's Bureau of Consular Affairs is authorizing lots of overtime in an effort to rein in passport wait times. The department is also planning to roll out online passport renewal later this year after letting the federal workforce test out that system. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And what's the workload? I mean, all of a sudden the world is on again, traveling, and people want passports by the millions. Right. Last year, the State Department broke a record when it issued 22 million passport books and cards last year. But you can count on that being a short-lived record here. The department is set to break that record this year and issue about 25 million passport books and cards as about a 15 percent increase from what we saw already. And this is through no lack of the employees working in the office. They have been back at their offices since the summer of 2020. They were right up there with the IRS in terms of sending people back soonest to deal with their backlog. Well, mine doesn't expire until I think 2025, so I won't pester them this year if they're going to do 25 million. And how long are applicants having to wait? What's their average wait time looking like now? We're still looking at elevated levels there that we saw already in the COVID-19 pandemic. Routine processing is taking about 10 to 13 weeks. And if you kick them an extra $60, you can get that down to seven to nine weeks. That's on top of the $130 baseline that you're already paying them. Wow. I remember one time a family member had expired, someone of a not yet of age traveling with us. And you can actually go into a passport office in D.C. and a few other cities, and they'll do it while you wait. You pay handsomely for that. But I remember the clerk saying there, she says, now, don't you move. Don't move out of that chair. Don't leave this office until you have that passport. Don't go for coffee or anything. We're going to get you set. You know, the flight was the next morning. All right. And on a new passport, then, same deal as a renewal? Yeah, we're looking at the same wait time, whether it's a new passport, an existing passport that needs to be renewed for another 10 years. It's the same queue for everyone. All right. And what are they doing to try to reduce the backlog? They've got only so many people. They've got rising numbers incoming. What are they doing here? They've had to authorize just a lot of overtime to deal with this workload. What we heard in a recent uh, hearing of the House Foreign Affairs Committee is that the State Department and their Bureau of Consular Affairs have approved tens of thousands of hours of overtime per month. We're talking in the order of thirty to 40,000 hours each month just to keep up with this, again, pretty significant backlog of what they're dealing with. Wow. So that means individual employees might be working double shifts or something just to help get the processing done. Right. And in some cases, this is not voluntary overtime. In some cases, this is mandatory. And this is just something that's part of what they need to do. And you were going to have dinner with the family. I don't think so. Is this partly recovery from the COVID impact on state operations? It definitely is. Just to give you a sense of how heavily hit they were by the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Bureau of Consular Affairs is fee-for-service driven. And so when we were in 2020, 2021, they saw a 50% drop in their revenue and Congress had to step in through its many emergency appropriations packages and backfill that loss in revenue. They had reven- they had appropriations that made up that difference and that gave the Bureau a little bit more flexibility in how it was able to fund its operations. But as a result of all of this, the Bureau had to freeze hiring for a while. It only saw a revenue increase starting in late 2021, and that's when it was able to resume hiring passport adjudicators. And in terms of that hiring overseas, which is another part of the operations here, that only began at the beginning of 2022. In other words, passport operations are fee-funded. They're not appropriated funded. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's tough on an agency when the fees dry up. And what do you do with all those people and then try to get them back? So what are their current hiring plans? What are they doing now to get the people, the bodies in place to process all of this? 
right? So Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs, Rena Bitter, gave lawmakers an update there. What they're looking to do is that they've already grown the workforce by about 10%. That comes down to about 177 new passport adjudicators. That's hiring that's already happened this year. And the Bureau is looking to grow the workforce by an additional 10%. That's still in the works. And what Bitter told lawmakers is that this is a long hiring process, even by federal standards, just given the sensitivity of this work. These are national security positions. Every passport adjudication, every visa adjudication is a national security position. And it does take time to onboard people to ensure that they have the appropriate clearances, to make sure they're suitable, to train them in many cases in quite difficult languages. So all of these things take a little bit of time before we're able to get people out in the field. And again, that's Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs, Rena Bitter. She said that this hiring is an essential part of what the Bureau needs to do. But she also told lawmakers that hiring is only one piece of the puzzle and that they do need to modernize their IT. We don't want to surge our way out of this. We don't want to insist on people doing overtime. We want to be able also to invest in modernized systems and equipment to be able to support these functions. And that, of course, brings up the question of online passport renewal. We've had online tax return submittal now for, you know, a couple of decades. What's the latest on the State Department's online renewal? Yeah, bringing this into the digital age hasn't been easy. This is something that has been in the works for many years now. But this is something that was also in the spotlight through the Biden administration's focus on improved customer experience. What the Bureau is looking at is that by the end of this year, 5 million Americans will be able to renew their passports entirely online through this new system. This is something that's gone through a bit of a soft launch. The department began testing this out in February of last year. They invited federal employees and contractors to test it out. They got between February and August of last year, 10,000 renewal applications, and they were able to handle those. And then they said, all right, let's turn the valve a little bit. And so they opened it to the general public last summer, and they got half a million applications. And so they've been dealing with those ever since. They did close that window for everyone to test it out in February of this year. And not to brag, Tom, I was one of the people who was in that queue and tested it out. I got my new passport this April. Wow. So it does work. They just need to scale it and know that the quality controls are in there and that the reliability is in there, correct? Right. At this point, they're really just doing the stress testing, doing these things at scale, doing things that are able to accommodate a much larger workload than what they started out with. And they've been working on this for a decade, though, right? Yeah. You know, there were some recent IG reports about this where the State Department expected this capability to go live in 2016. And you know that was a deadline that was pushed back from even earlier. And this is something that will be a see it when you believe it kind of thing. But this has been in the works for a very long period of time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, is the federal data strategy more than just a piece of paper? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The federal data strategy needs a top-to-bottom rethinking. In the view of one business group, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation says the strategy simply doesn't serve the needs of a government trying to modernize and digitize. We get more now from the foundation's policy fellow, Eric Egan. Eric, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's just begin with a quick one-minute review. What is the federal data strategy? It's been around a while, and I think it was recently revisited, correct, by the uh, Biden administration. Revisited might be uh, too strong of a word, but uh, yeah, so essentially it was a a Trump administration initiative. So the Trump administration had a um, cross-agency priority to kind of improve how the federal government uses data and kind of accountability and uh, accessibility around data. A part of that capital was the development of a federal data strategy. So the OMB under Trump developed this kind of 10-year strategy to cross kind of government strategy to improve how the, how the federal government manages and uses data. And it kind of structured it um, according to 10 foundational principles, and it uses those which can be broken into 40 aspirational practices, kind of best practices, if you will. And then the concept is that every year there is a, a kind of tactical device, an action plan that 
each federal agency kind of has to adhere to in order to kind of progress the strategy overall. There so, is also a data act and there is also mandates by Congress to act on the part of federal agencies according to data-driven decision-making. So this is not something from outer space, really. Absolutely. No, that's that's a great point. And, and you know, part of the – so both, you know, the, so the Evidence Act and the Open Government Data Act – which are um, Open Government Act is a part of the Evidence Act, but those both came out in 2018. So the the, the strategy itself is in many ways kind of a, a way for the federal agencies to kind of adhere and get get those um, you know congressionally mandated laws in place. And that's kind of one of one of the biggest shortcomings is one a lot of that congressionally mandated guidance that OMB is supposed to provide to agencies, so namely open data access, you know, what they're supposed to do sure. in terms of providing, you know, the access to, to the public and to stakeholders, and then also data standards across federal agencies has just not been provided. That's a, a law. By law, they have to do that. And the strategy itself has certain actions to, to you know, publish open data and, and to adhere to those kinds of things. But without the guidance, agencies can't really comply with those kinds of actions. Well, could one reason for a lack of guidance be that for the Biden administration, they have a horror movie running in their heads all the time. And the name of that movie is It Came From Trump, which means it's anathema. So could they be just letting it die a natural death by not issuing any sort of guidance to implement it, do you think? It, it, it could be. But the reason I think maybe not in that it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, a change in administration and maybe they just didn't prioritize. But it, I, I think it. the weird thing is, is that they, you know, so the 2020 action plan was released by Trump, but then the 2021, the last action plan that was released, which at this point is, you know, a few, a few years ago, you know, that was from the Biden administration. And, and the, the data strategy itself is, is, is fairly kind of generic, which is one of the other findings. And it's, you know, what, what any company or uh, other business would agree are, are pretty well-defined and decent in terms of high-level kind of pole stars for how a mature data organization should look like. So part of it's like, this is really an opportunity for the Biden administration to say, like, all right, this is, you know, this isn't moving particular mission outcomes from the Trump administration, but it has some good bones here. Why can't we, you know, why not change this and make it and repurpose it for our, our own mission outcomes? And- sure. We're speaking with Eric Egan. He's a policy fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And you're saying that, just a quote from the opening of your report, the federal data strategy suffers from a lack of leadership, as we've discussed, fails to link its well-defined principles and practices to government-wide and agency-wide missions or agency-level missions. So what should OMB do with this at this point? Can it be fixed and can it be made relevant and actionable? It can. It really is. You know, there's a few recommendations I include in my report and um, you know, one, one of the things OMB did was create this governance body, this oversight body called the Federal Data Policy Committee that hasn't really done anything, but it really should be the OMB body that's driving a lot of the work around government-wide data standards and, and these things that we're talking about. Getting that body in place, I think, is a, is a big one. I mean, by law, <laughs> the OMB has to provide this guidance around, you know, open data and standards, and this seems like a good body to do that. And there's just, you know, part of it is just taking the bones of the, the strategy and, and just kind of taking it to the next level. So that's thinking about what are the Biden administration's priorities so that, you know, they have aspirations around using AI, improving customer experience, improving efficiency, and then they have mission outcomes around, you know, addressing income and racial inequality. There's, there's a bunch of things they want to do and better data governance is critical to supporting all of those. So there's an opportunity to kind of tweak the strategy to support those mission outcomes. And I think one of the other recommendations that Data Foundation also has supported is the creation of a federal CEO. So there is, in the same way that we have a federal CIO and a federal CIO council and agency CIOs, you know, OMB has a has a strong has strong leadership for the agency CIOs, but CDOs don't have that. And they they're really kind of, you know, of the CDOs I've, I've spoken to are really kind of flailing, though, flailing in, in terms of guidance. I mean, they're doing a lot of good work at the agency level, but they're kind of on their own and they and they, they feel as such. They Often they work under the CIO, so it's really unclear like where their seat at the table is. They're dealing with kind of funding and staffing short issues, you know, which many agencies executives are. But, you know, there's, there's an opportunity, especially with a federal CDO, to really put some fire under you know, what OMB has to do and then kind of tweak the me- the action plan mechanism. You know, you can you can do this in such a way that works in a federated structure. Right. So you can 
you can change how the action plan is developed, give agency CDOs more to work with. They can kind of contribute to what that action plan should look like so it aligns right, sure. with their missions. Yeah. Now, OMB is itself something of a constrained organization in terms of the number of people it has versus the lot of work it has to do. You see lights on late at night sometimes in the old executive office building and you know they have pizza coming in Saturdays and Sundays you got to give them that could that be one of the issues that they just haven't gotten around to it yet and would one strategy be to take some of those floundering or confused CDOs from the agencies and task them to some kind of a working group to come up with a action plan for the data strategy yeah yeah i think that's i think that's really the way of course, you know, there are there are existing constraints and you're totally right that that's likely just it, it just can't be prioritized given other things that are working out that working out. But but the, the reality is that data is data governance and use of data in, in federal government is a huge priority. But, you know, one of the they have some of these kind of paper entity mechanisms in place that if they just kind of evolve, could do quite a quite a bit like there's this notion of a data governance body, which is at the agency level. That's where you have, you know, maybe the agency level CDO working with his business colleagues to make really the action plan their own. So really, you have OMB not really having you to doing too much, being like, here are the kind of government wide. Here's really what we need to do year to year. There's an opportunity for you to take that action plan, adjust it, change it, make it make it your own, your own at the agency level. So it's really your action plan, but it, it aligns with the guidance that comes from OMB. So it's really just like using the constraints, understanding that there are constraints, but um, just being more thoughtful and tactical and and how you approach this, the strategy overall. And you mentioned AI a moment ago, and that idea, that emergence of AI seems to give this some urgency because AI is worthless or worse than yep. worthless. It can be damaging without training with the correct data. And so really the answer to having an AI strategy has got to be backed by a good data strategy. Fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's that's why, you know, to your earlier point, there's there should be momentum around this because the Biden administration is working on a national AI strategy that really has to align with an active, up-to-date, mission-oriented federal data strategy. Otherwise, that AI strategy is going nowhere if agencies have barely know where their data is and it's all in different formats there's no standards you know they don't know how to share it with one another well what if they just hired chat gpt dumped the strategy as it stands now in there see what comes out and they're good to go i'm sure someone has done that that's that's <laughs> if they dare surface that document eric egan is a policy fellow at the information technology and innovation foundation hey thanks so much thanks Tom. we'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts Still to come, retirement might be more complicated than getting a job in the first place. But first, for the Veterans Health Administration, virtual reality is more than fun and games. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Immersive technology has shown real promise in treating both physical and psychological illnesses. It's taking hold at the Veterans Health Administration, enabled by a special network called Extended Reality Network, XR. The leaders of the team that built the network are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Ann Lord Bailey and Caitlin Rollins are director and deputy director of clinical tech innovation at VHA, and they join me now. Ms. Bailey, good to have you on. Thank you so much. And Ms. Rollins, good to have you back. Thank you. And tell us exactly what happens at the office that you guys had, the clinical tech innovation unit. What happens there? What's the goal here overall? So we work with the Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning. We're a, a program within that office, and that office is really leaning into designing, developing, testing, scaling a variety of innovation across VA, because what we want is for our veterans to have the access to the soonest and best care. Um, we want our clinicians and our frontline staff to be healthy and whole. So we want to lean into whole health as well. And if there are ways that we can leverage clinical tech and innovation in that space to help support those initiatives, we certainly want to do that. And Ms. Rollins, how has, I guess, augmented reality, virtual reality, immersive technology, these are all, I guess, related or maybe the same thing. <laughs> what do they do for people that they can benefit from? 
So extended reality is definitely the kind of umbrella term. We also use immersive technology as kind of an umbrella term for both virtual reality and augmented reality. But it really depends on how you're using it with an individual. So a lot of our use in the VA currently centers around virtual reality for patient-facing solutions. So it may be a general positive distraction to aid with a lot of different diagnoses, or it may be existing evidence-based modalities through the new mode of virtual reality. And then, of course, there's also education and training, which may more often use either VR or AR, but that can be for clinical skills or other types of skills and education that need to be provided to both staff, patients, and or their caregivers, depending on what the particular platform is. And the other technology that VA has been really a leader in, not just from the pandemic, but maybe that accelerated it, is telemedicine. And can VR and AR, augmented reality, can they also coexist in a tele type of situation? They definitely can. And so that is something that the VA is pursuing right now is how do we get these devices into the hands of patients in their homes to help extend the reach of the healthcare system, extend the reach of the actual clinicians, and also empower patients to take over some of their own care, take responsibility for their own care using these devices independently at home. So we actually have one pilot right now where we're sending devices home with patients for chronic pain management using a program that's based off cognitive behavioral therapy that they use independently every day to hopefully aid with their overall pain management and learning how to become more resilient to the symptoms of chronic pain. So that is a current pilot, but that is absolutely something that's possible. I guess that beats swinging an imaginary sword at an imaginary foe and crashing into your television set because you can't see it. That is very true. That sounds much more hazardous to the health than what we were going for. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And uh, Ms. Bailey, this XR network, it's not a network of wires and high bandwidth connections, is it? No, this is a network of people, which is something that we've seen uh, be incredibly powerful as this collaborative community. So I know we throw a lot of names out and about, but uh, we have a VA immersive team that focuses on continuing to expand use of immersive technology like virtual reality and augmented reality across VA. And one of the programs within VA immersive is this XR network. And what we've seen is this ground up effort, this groundswell of frontline staff and veterans who every time they put their head in a headset, which is one of our mantras, get heads and headsets, right? Every time a veteran or clinician puts their head in a headset, the way that you see the demeanor of that person change. And then as soon as they take the headset off, it is what else can we use this for? When we see those kinds of things, we know this is something that we need to do more of. We need to invest human capital. We need to invest resources in because the veterans and staff are asking for more. And what's really fascinating about it is it's not just one discipline. It's not just physicians or nurses or social workers. It's disciplines across the entire healthcare system. We're speaking with Ann Lord Bailey and Caitlin Rollins. They lead the clinical tech innovation team at the Veterans Health Administration, and they're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And when there's a new, say, surgical procedure, the people that do surgery have to learn this. And sometimes you have to go for additional training, you know, maybe at an institute that pioneered that procedure, or if there's a new drug, there's all kinds of things you need to learn. This is a new medical delivery system, which you said is diffused among not just physicians, but nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, I guess anyone that would come in contact with a patient. So in this XR network, what kinds of training and materials do people get such that they can responsibly get into the VR work with patients? That's a great question. So I'm actually a pharmacist by training. Caitlin is a nurse. It's been one of the really exciting things, as we said, that we've seen. And we provide now, of course, we call it XR 101, and it's it offers 20 different continuing education units across multiple disciplines, physical therapists, occupational therapists, recreation therapists. That's one of the values of being in VA is that VA really allows clinicians and providers to function at the top of their license. And we're able to now train those clinicians now to use this new modality. It's been really exciting to see. And when it comes to just a specific question, pain management is an important endeavor for VA, always has been. And, you know, VA was a pioneer in the responsible use of the OxyContin and so forth and how to get off it quickly and this kind of thing. What happens in a headset, for example, that can help people with pain management? 
So that can be, um, like I said, a lot of different things. So it might be something like cognitive behavioral therapy where they're doing mindfulness and deep breathing and other, you know, already evidence-based modalities in virtual reality. And the benefit of virtual reality is that it it's more immersive. You actually feel more engaged with the content because you are present in this virtual world. And that's the same thing with any type of education and training. And as we know, cognitive behavioral therapy is really about training your brain. So similar to how we would do any sort of clinical training or other types of education and training in VR, same thing with the patient. So it's educating them in a more engaging, immersive way that allows for better knowledge retention when it comes to how they're training themselves to better manage their own chronic pain. And then of course, for pain management, it can also be as simple as positive distraction where they're playing interactive games or they're traveling to places all over the world. Because especially if you're in acute pain post-operatively, what you need is a distraction. You need something to interrupt that pain signal going to your brain by introducing positive stimuli. And so that's what virtual reality is able to do in that capacity as well. Because the question comes up for people that might have chronic pain, it's great if you're in that headset. When you take a pill, it'll last for four hours or six hours. You take off the headset and you might feel great, but then you get in the car to drive over to the VFW hall and all the traffic and the tension returns. Does this have a lasting effect outside of the headset, I guess is my question. So that's something that's definitely still under investigation. And one of the things that we hope to help answer is exactly how long does the effect last? We know that it works incredibly well in that moment and immediately following a session, but what is the cadence for use, you know, and how long do they need to use it each time they use it to create a lasting effect? Or if you're using it for something like cognitive behavioral therapy, how does that help them to learn how to handle those situations when their pain gets triggered again? So yes, they're fine when they were leaving their house, but then traffic, everything else, everything compounded on itself. Now they're feeling it again. How do we use virtual reality to train them even in those moments to kind of bring themselves back down out of that pain or out of the anxiety or whatever it might be, whatever diagnosis they might be dealing with? Is anecdotally, we hear those reports from veterans um, and even some of our clinicians and staff that have tried virtual reality is they may obviously be walking around a grocery store without a headset on, something is triggering to them, whether it be pain or anxiety related, and they recall some of those experiences they had while they were in the headset. That psychological presence really is transformative. So as Caitlin said, that's something we certainly want to continue to uh, contribute to that rigorous evidence for. And as a program, let's get back to the program aspects of this, because VA has however many hundred and odd big medical centers, hundreds of more places of delivery throughout the country, private places of delivery. How are you ensuring that this becomes equally accessible by all veterans across a really large system where it might take five years to deploy a new pill bottle? That's uh, that's what's been so exciting about the network. VA has 171 healthcare systems, over 1,200 sites of care, 9 million veterans, and almost 400,000 staff. So how do we reach all those people with a team of four? And Caitlin and I were doing this as a team of two until the last six months. But that's where we really lean into and leverage that network and try to empower the field so that we can multiply ourselves. If we can build expertise in the field, then what we really need to do is open up opportunities and then equip people and they're able to multiply it. So we can say right now our team has supported dissemination of over 1,200 headsets across 30 different clinical uses, and at least 120 unique medical centers have received support directly from us, and there's almost 170 medical centers that are engaged with the network. So they're learning from us, but we haven't necessarily specifically trained them or sent them headsets, uh, but they're engaged in using some of the resources that we provide. And I guess some of the younger veterans that might already have headsets could bring it in and plug in and get the treatment that way. That's very true. And we do have multiple accounts of that actually occurring, where even some of the patients that were introduced to it in VA care, before we were even able to get a device in their hands, they found it so valuable, they went out and bought a VR headset themselves that they then use for chronic pain, for their anxiety, for you know encounters that may trigger their PTSD for social isolation even. So we do have patients that seek it out all by themselves. And I I wanted to make a point too about the, the resources. So one of the things that the XR network does is helps to build 
kind of nationally available resources for clinical staff to make it easier for them to integrate this technology into the standard of care, the standard of practice. Because that's one thing that we know for sure. When you have new technology and you're trying to integrate it into healthcare, unless they have adequate support to help them to do that, it'll end up sitting on a shelf because clinicians are busy. They go overwhelmed. They don't have the time to figure out how to do it, how to fit it into their existing clinical workflow. So that's something that we really tried to help do. And I think has been very successful in making it easier for all of those 170 plus sites to actually integrate the technology into care at individual VAs. So you're really at the outset of this program in some sense. Yeah, exactly. Caitlin Rollins and Ann Lord Bailey lead the Clinical Tech Innovation Team at the Veterans Health Administration. They're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about their work at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, retirement might be more complicated than getting a job in the first place. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The push for ever more productivity, the nudging to return to the office, the political comings and goings, the funding uncertainty. It's enough to convince some feds it's time to retire. But think about it first. There's an opportunity cost to retiring. We get more now from retired federal manager and financial advisor Abe Grungold. And Abe, the instinct to retire needs to be accompanied with a lot of thought, doesn't it? Yes. If you're thinking of retiring at the end of this year, there are a standard list of questions that I always suggest to my clients. And these 10 questions are, are you eligible to retire? Can you afford to retire? Are you allowed to keep your health insurance plan in retirement? Are you going to keep your federal long-term plan in retirement? When are you going to be eligible for Social Security? When should you elect Social Security? How much life insurance are you going to need in retirement? What should you do about Medicare? Should you transfer your TSP to an IRA? And how do you handle your TSP with respect to withdrawals and inflations? So these are the 10 topical questions that retirees or potential retirees need to think about before they start filling out their paperwork. Now, it seems like the first consideration of the 10-year eligibility would be the simplest. Well, Tom, it's only simple for those people who have put in a significant amount of time in the government. You are eligible to retire if you reach your minimum retirement age plus 10 years of federal service. You must have that to obtain a retirement. You can have a deferred retirement, but when you select deferred retirement and you don't have your MRA, you can lose a lot of your available benefits. And with respect to your keeping your health insurance under the federal employee health benefits plans and your long-term care insurance that you might have had through the federal plans. What's a good source of information for determining what you can keep and what you can go forward with? Well, that's a good question. With respect to health insurance, a lot of people carry their health insurance through their spouse. So before you retire, you need to ask your spouse what are their insurance availability in retirement, the cost of it, And how far away are you going to be to Medicare? So it's really a dollar and cents issue. So you need to research that out on the OPM website and on the Medicare.gov website. Now, with respect to long-term care insurance, the best thing to do about long-term care is to hang on to it if you have a policy, because long-term care is getting exceedingly expensive as we age. My mother was in a nursing home, and she had to pay $150,000 per year in a nursing home. So if you have a long-term care policy, hang on to it if you can afford it. A lot of people can't afford one. 
And that's, again, a dollar and cents issue. And the question of Social Security and when to elect it for FERS employees and, you know, those that came later or that might have come to the government, you know, mid-career and didn't have an entire federal career, they're all eligible for Social Security. Although I know a few SERS people still haven't quite retired yet. But for those people that can get Social Security after government work, that when to elect always elicits a lot of debate when people talk about it. Some people say, take it now. You don't know how long you're going to live. Why leave it on the table? Others say, well, I presume I'm going to live long enough such that the monthly payment is much bigger if I wait longer. How do you know the right answer there? Well, that is a very complicated question. Even for myself, it was a complicated issue, Tom, because when I retired, I had some health issues, and I decided to submit my retirement application at the age of 64. Now, my wife stopped me, and she said, Abe, why don't you take it at full retirement and let me take it early? And that way, I hate to say, if something happens to me, my wife would get the higher of the two. So that was a strategy that we as a married couple discussed, and I thought it was an excellent idea. And here my wife pointed something out to me, and I withdrew my Social Security application. So you really have to look at your budget. Do you need Social Security now to pay your bills? Are you healthy? And if you're healthy, maybe you can hold off on Social Security. And the other big issue is, do you plan on still working after you retire? So if you're working, you really don't want to take Social Security. Uh, You want to hold off on that. Or if you're working, say, part-time for half of what you earned earlier, then you may want to. Yes. If you're working part-time, there is a dollar amount, I believe it's $21,560, that you can earn without losing any Social Security benefits. And yes, working part-time is a good strategy in retirement. It keeps you busy, keeps you active, it provides a source of income, and you don't have to lose any Social Security. I believe it's $21,560. And if you go above that, then Social Security diminishes, but does it go back up again once you fully retire? Well, if you fully retire, then no, your Social Security would stay the same. You just get the COLAs for each additional year that you age. But no, if you're getting Social Security at age 62 and you're working part-time, you can earn up to 21560 There's no reduction. But certainly after the age of 67, you can earn a million dollars a year and you're not going to lose any of your Social Security. Well, that's a relief because I had that personal question myself. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a retired federal manager and now does financial, I guess you could say life coaching, because life coaching is probably right next door to financial coaching. And the withdrawal strategy, I mean, that's what really I think worries a lot of people because that's your principal. And so you want to make sure, you know, that the principal is growing, even if you take the return from it, you know, the nest egg, that's everyone's big question. Yes. Well, this is a tough question because as a TSP participant, I am still in the TSP, even though I am retired and you need to invest your TSP somewhat aggressively to handle the monthly withdrawal amounts that you're making as well as inflation. So you don't have to be fully aggressive. You need to be somewhat aggressive in your retirement years. And you can have a sizable monthly withdrawal. And if you're somewhat aggressive, that growth will sustain itself. Your TSP should never diminish as you are in retirement years. And for me, even though I have a long-term care plan, My long-term care plan will be exhausted after two years. My war chest for nursing home is my TSP. So that's where I'm going to pay for those nursing home years is my TSP. Sure, or else uh, you can hope to have enough dementia that you don't know you're in a nursing home. (laughs) That's maybe some small solace. Unfortunately, yes. As long as you know that you have the ability to pay for your nursing home care, And it's also a good idea when you get on in years is to establish an estate plan 
so someone is paying those bills in the event you are not able to make your own financial decision. So let's get back to that original question you mentioned, and that is the opportunity cost of retirement. That seems like a big part of the equation, and probably your lifestyle and what you plan to spend and spend it on, too. That's the other side of this, besides all the income questions. Well, the opportunity cost used to be something that I used to hear from federal employees who were much older than I was at that time, and they were retiring, and they had all these grand plans of what they were going to do in retirement. And let's say you are earning $100,000 a year as a federal employee, okay? And you're going to get a $40,000 a year pension. Now, say you just want to have a mindless job in retirement. You want to work in a flower store or you want to work at Home Depot. You want to work part-time or whatever. And you're earning $40,000 a year. Well, now you're earning $80,000 a year. You could be working full-time in retirement, working in a flower store at Home Depot, and you're working full-time. You're losing $20,000 a year by doing that. Now, a lot of people work remotely. They want to teach English to people remotely. Okay, fine. You're earning that $40,000 a year teaching English. You are also getting a $40,000 pension, you're losing $20,000 a year, and you no longer have that government computer. You have to go out and buy a computer now. You have to buy a headset. So there's a expense to incur in order to do that part-time job. And both jobs that I mentioned, you're not getting the TSP matching of 5%, and that was a loss of another $5,000. So you really have to understand what is it you're going to do in retirement and how much are you going to earn? And maybe it's just a good idea to work an extra year or two. And you have to evaluate that opportunity cost. And before we get complaints from the florists, it might be that you really like flowers because flowers can be a very creative type of endeavor. So please, no complaints from florists. We love you. So the idea of working another year that predisposes the idea that you like your work because a lot of people just burn out maybe. Yes, that's true. I I had a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine. He was a federal manager high up and he had to retire to take care of his spouse, but he still wanted to keep busy. So he worked at Home Depot in the landscaping department and he did it just, you know, for the physical aspect of it and he enjoyed it. And I said, you know, that's a wonderful idea. You stay busy, you're working, and you enjoy what you're doing. Yes, people get burned out. And, you know, government jobs are very tough, especially these frontline jobs that people just don't want to do anymore. They can't tolerate it. So it is difficult. I actually had a great government job. I worked remotely, but I was a lucky person. Well, yeah, I know what it's like as as a person who loves what I do every day. I love getting in here in the morning and firing up the computer and seeing who am I going to talk to today. I mean, it's hard to beat that. On the other hand, you know, taking a three-day trip, uh, you know, and everyone else is going home and they can fool around on Tuesday to do whatever they want, and i got to go back to work. So you're working later than almost everyone you know, and you kind of miss being in that particular swim, but... Everybody's decision is individual. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager. He's now a financial coach in Florida. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me on today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive, working or retired, wherever you get your podcasts. Generative artificial intelligence, it's the topic of lots of talk in the federal sector. But unlike previous excitement over cloud and zero trust, Generative AI is striking apprehension in federal officials. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why agencies from EPA to GSA to HHS are putting the brakes on widespread use of tools such as ChatGPT and OpenAI. Jason joins me now in studio. 
Now, a brief explanation of what these programs are. We hear about it all the time, chat GPT, generative AI, people get so excited about it. But I think what gets lost sometimes is what is it? And I looked this up, Tom McKinsey defines it as generative AI is algorithms such as chat GPT that can be used to create new content, including audio, code, images, text, simulations, and videos. Generally speaking, it falls under the broad category of machine learning. And specifically, McKinsey says something like chat GPT is a free chat bot that can generate an answer to almost any question it's asked. The organization called OpenAI developed it, released it for testing last November, and over a million people signed up for it in the first five days. And 999,999 got the wrong answer. Probably. And like any new technology, Tom, industry is quick to jump on the bandwagon and how agencies could be using it. And I think agencies are listening because of what the power it can do from grants to contracts to policies to writing analysis. Tom, you and I know we can't go to any conference, listen to any webinar, hear any federal Sure. speak without generative AI, chat GPT coming up. And the buzz can be deafening at times. Right. In fact, this is Jason's bot actually doing the talking here. He's not really here. Just kidding. Tom, Why... you are doing a great job. <laughs> right. Why all the apprehension, though, about it if it does all these wondrous things? I think there's several reasons. I think starting off is the reason they just don't know what they don't know. And there is so much buzz around it. In fact, Tom, I've been, we've been to several conferences recently, including the one from GuyTech, where this was the buzz across all of GuyTech. And Katie Barnes, the deputy chief science data officer for NASA's science mission director, she was, spoke there and says there's a lot of things that agencies just don't know about chat GPT and generative AI. To try to develop a strategy that's going to help you long term while really not understanding what's going on right now or, or the speed at which that goes. I think keeping up with that is, is the real challenge for us. Again, Katie Baines from NASA. It's more than just, well, we don't know what we don't know and, and, and how it can be used. I think there's a lot of concern about what can come from this generative AI. Is the document, is the information correct? What doc, What is being put in there and what can be put in there? And this has led to several new policies coming out. The Environmental Protection Agency came out in early May with a policy, and basically it was a very simple email that said, don't use it, anything in the generative AI world, and we will come out with policy later to really explain how to use it. And just recently, Tom, I got a hold of a new policy from the General Services Administration. They call this an instructional letter. This was uh, the, the kind of basics were posted online but I got a hold of the actual three-page letter, and this came from David Shive, the CIO at GSA, and he goes into a lot more detail about the concerns about generative AI and something called LLMs, large language models. You'll see this. And basically what this interim policy says is it's controlled access on GSA network and government-furnished devices, GFEs. Now, at the same time, he says, listen – you shouldn't use it to put any information in it that's sensitive. You shouldn't put any pre-decisional, no email, no personal data in it. Keep it. Be smart about it. If you're going to, and don't develop code with it either, except for internal use only. And if you do use code, make sure it's checked against it. So I think he's putting a lot of parameters around it because there's a lot of concern about what does it mean and how does it work. Yeah, it's basically a black box is the problem. And when everyone is talking about accountable, transparent, supportable, open AI, I know it's titled open AI, but the fact is it's a black box. And I think that's what worries the government. Is this widespread or a lot of other agencies sort of issuing these directives? We've only heard of a handful so far. EPA and GSA were very much, let's use, let's not use it or use it very sparingly. On the other hand, and the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families, the acting CIO and chief technology officer, Kevin Duvall, posted a policy on LinkedIn and said, we're going to take more of a balanced approach. Again, very similar do's and don'ts, six considerations about using chatbots and generative AI. Simple things like don't share PII or personal health data. Make sure your workforce is educated. Make sure you don't just rely on these tools for decision-making purposes. Make sure you double-check, triple-check what you're using for. But I think he really he really sees the potential there and wants agencies, or his agencies specifically, to be smart about how they're using it. At the same time, Tom, we also know that the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy issued a request for information May 23rd asking for public input about how agencies could use or benefit from generative AI tools. That due date is July 7th for feedback. And of course, the Homeland Security Department also created a new AI task force to look at these and other issues around AI. So there's a lot going on. What's going to happen is I think the Office of Management Budget eventually will have to come up with some sort of policy.
And do we know of any impact at the program level? Are agencies applying it in some way and that might be beneficial and also something to worry about? They're starting to see that now. And I think it's it's coming from two different perspectives. I think in the research and development world, there's opportunities to use it and take advantage of it. But more specifically, I think it's happening in the private sector that's being now applied to the to the government side. Andrea Brandon is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition for the Interior Department. She spoke at the recent Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference at ACT-IAC and says the technology is giving underserved communities and other potential people more access to federal opportunities. Now we're hearing from them that they can actually use it to write the grant applications. It pulls information from successful grant applications that are out there in the open space, and it's helping them to actually maybe write successful grant applications where in 20 years they haven't been able to really write because it's about how you write the application against the criteria in the notice of funding opportunity announcement and and other nuances. The challenge, of course, Tom, is as Brandon says, there is no policy for contractors or grant applicants. And so that then brings a new set of challenges for Interior or really any other agency for that matter. The organizations that are using ChatGPT currently are finding that it's actually cheaper to use ChatGPT than to hire a grant writer. Some organizations never had the funds to write a grant to hire a grant writer. So, as we discuss whether we're going to still allow ChatGPT in the future or what have you, we discuss policy. We're we're all just discussing it. We'll we'll take that into consideration. We never told uh, applicants that they couldn't use grant writers. So I don't know. Maybe we won't tell them they can't use ChatGPT. Maybe they'll be able to still use it. I don't know. But currently, it's leveling the playing field. So it's great that there's all this ability to send in grant applications. But now what's Interior going to do? And Andrea Brandon from Interior says they used to get, let's say, 400 grant applications. Now they could get over 1,000. That puts a strain on resources and people and timeliness. So these are all the kind of the unintentional or, or unknown consequences of chat GPT, generative AI, which is why I think a lot of agencies are saying, we see the potential, we're excited, but whoa, let's slow down. Well, the issue here is I think it could generate fake applications from fake organizations that really sound authoritative. And so I think the deep fake idea is hitting this generative idea, and that's what got people worried. How does it work? What's behind it? You mentioned it earlier, being a black box. So I think there's so many questions that are yet unanswered. So instead of jumping into the water, they want to put one toe in and go very slowly, which is why you're seeing these new policies. And there's an alligator in that water. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Again, this is ChatGPT speaking. All right. Check out his reporter's notebook, typed by hand at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 